Hello, I'm Amelia Allen, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. Since we are in the midst of the spooky season, I will be giving a horror movie recommendation at the end of the episode. But more importantly, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I am dedicating this month's episodes to stories that involve this terrible dynamic. If you are a victim of domestic violence, there is help for you. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-SAFE, which is 800-799-7233. You can also visit thehotline.org. It's got an emergency escape, so if you have someone in the home with you, you can easily get out of that website. I've also included links on altitudecrime.com both to donate and learn more at the website for the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And you'll notice I'm posting a lot more stats on social media through the month. Uh, I picked some that you might not think about, like missing work and how domestic violence really upsets a normal day-to-day for a victim. As we saw last episode, a lot of domestic violence cases aren't heavily reported on. So this episode is actually going to feature two cases, just so I can give you guys a little bit longer episode this week. So let's get into it. Our first case took place in Monte Vista that has a population of about 5,000 people. Monte Vista is located in the San Luis Valley, just at the foot of the San Juan Mountains, and got its name because of the view of said mountains. Farmers in the nearby area grow barley for the many breweries in the state, and Monte Vista is the hub for a lot of this commerce. On February 13, 2012, police were called to the home of Sarah Beasley and John Salazar on the 500 block of Lyell Street. Sarah Beasley was 29 and John Salazar was her 54-year-old boyfriend. The two lived in the home with Sarah's three young sons. Sarah had met John as he was the crosswalker at the school that the boys went to. February 13 started out as a normal day. John Salazar worked as a janitor at the elementary school as well and was preparing for the day ahead. Sarah's three boys were asleep while the two adults got ready for their work days. As John Salazar left for work that morning, the perpetrator shot him as he came out the door to leave to go to his car. Police would later find that John had one shot to the chest, two to the back as he turned to run back into the house, one in his hand as a defensive wound. Police assume at this point he had fallen and was on the ground, and the last shot would be one to the head. Sarah was still inside the home. The killer entered and shot her next. Many shots to the doors and shell casings were found throughout the interior of the house, and it looked like the killer basically just put his hand in the door and started shooting. Sarah had scrambled to her son's rooms to try to protect them, and was shot in the back as she did so. The gunshots and Sarah's screaming would wake up her sons. Sarah's three sons, ages 8, 6, and 2, all witnessed their mother being shot to death. The 8-year-old, James, bravely asked who the masked man was. The person had responded only with a, 
hush motion by raising his finger to his mouth. All three boys would have to pass over their mother's deceased body to get out of the door and out of the house. Brave eight-year-old James got all of his brothers together, put jackets on them, got a rifle and ammo from the house, and went to the neighbor's house where they called 911. The eight-year-old was later able to tell police what he saw. The killer was a man wearing a mask, and he had shot his mother two or three times. While the victims' bodies and the crime scene told a story, it wouldn't give investigators a lot to go off of. They found a flashlight at the scene about six feet away from John Salazar's body. The gun that was used in the murder was never found, but it was determined that the weapon was most likely a 22 caliber gun and was the only weapon used at the scene. As investigators looked for clues, the sun would slowly rise on the scene and illuminate a message written on the house. Written in red spray paint was the message, my drugs are not free. The same message was also painted on a door in the house, the same one that Sarah's body was found inside of. Murders like this are not common in Monte Vista, and the police force actually has no detective unit, and the entire force has less than 15 officers. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation was called in to help, and the FBI would join in too, most likely because of the possible drug relation in the murder. A drug-related murder just did not really make sense to anybody in the Monte Vista community. John was well-respected and was really a person that people turned to. Sarah was going to school to be a counselor and was a single mom working to support her ambitions. People in town were really surprised that the two would be involved in drugs at all. As the police went through their investigation, they would get a visitor to the police department, and that would be Daniel Bessie, Sarah's ex and the father to her two-year-old son, Edward. Bessie had come to the police department as soon as he heard about the murders. Police had not even gotten far enough into the investigation to start checking on him. Daniel Bessie was 41, and Bessie and Sarah had been on again, off again for quite a while. Bessie was currently living in Sawatch at the time, which is just south of Monte Vista. Bessie told police that there was really no issues in he and Sarah's relationship and that they co-parented well. Bessie had explained how a few days earlier he had gone over to Sarah's house to help her with some car trouble she was having, and he had taken his flashlight over there to help him look at the car. He had forgotten it and had determined with Sarah that he would pick it up on Monday. The murders happened before this Monday came. Bessie explained that during the murders, he had been on a truck run and was nowhere near the area. Police checked in on his alibi and the route he was supposed to be on, and that he had stopped in Montrose at the time of the killings. All of his trucking logs matched his story. Bessie seemed to be uninvolved, and investigators continued on other theories to figure out who had killed Sarah and John. Investigators continued to work the drug angle given the message that was written on the house. But Sarah and John's friends and family just knew they were not involved in drugs and thought that maybe a hitman had gone to the wrong house. After some time, Sarah and John's toxology would come back showing that neither had been using, neither had any more than caffeine in their system. This ruled out the drug investigation and meant that the writing on the house was purely to distract police, which it surely had done. 
As police asked around in the neighborhood, they would find out that there were no witnesses to the shooting, only neighbors who heard the commotion. Sarah's cell phone was found in the house, and at 4 a.m., she had texts from a person named Leon Parrish just about a half an hour before the killing started. The conversation seemed like maybe Leon wanted to be in a relationship with her, and Sarah wasn't interested. Police went ahead and tracked down Leon Parrish as the texts were just so close to the time of the murders. He was found in Salt Lake City and couldn't have physically been present in Monte Vista. This established his alibi and was another lead that ended for police. Police also looked into an ex-boyfriend of Sarah's who lived close to the house. She and this ex-boyfriend still had a good relationship from what he said. But police thought there could still be some motive to get John out of the picture and for this gentleman to get back together with Sarah. Upon searching the house, they would find an open spray paint can that was the same color as the message written on Sarah and John's house. The ex-boyfriend said he had recently used the paint to paint a cherry picker on the property. The police saw this cherry picker but still took the can to compare to what was at the scene. But the ex-boyfriend would not be connected to the murder, as the spray paint at his house did not match what was at the crime scene. As the weeks went on, leads like this continued to dry up. Police would find someone, rule them out, and move on to the next person. To try to shed some light on the investigation, they decided to talk to Sarah's mom, Sonia, one more time to see if there was anything she may have remembered from the days or weeks leading up to the murder. And police did get a new piece of information from this conversation. Sonia explained that Sarah had gone shopping with her aunt one afternoon, which was actually in conflict to Daniel Bessie's story. The store that Sarah and her aunt had gone to had surveillance, and police could see Sarah going into the store and coming back out and leaving. The same time frame was the time frame in which Daniel Bessie had said he was at Sarah's house fixing her car, which now could not be true. Once police started to look into Bessie more closely, they found that his cell phone had pinged in Alamosa, nowhere near Sarah's home, at the same time that he said he was supposedly fixing her car. As police looked into Sarah and Bessie's relationship more, they found out about the custody case, the same one that Sarah would have been going to that afternoon had she not been killed. This was also contrary to what Bessie had told police about them being able to co-parent well. Police executed a warrant to search Bessie's home. Bessie's current girlfriend was there with two of Sarah's oldest boys babysitting at the time. A gun case was found in Bessie's home, but with no pistol inside of it. But the case seemed to be for a Ruger 22 caliber gun. This size of pistol would match the murder weapon if it was found. Police found that Bessie did have a weapon matching this description that he had bought from a friend. They tracked down this particular friend who was currently living in Montana. This friend was able to take them to a point on his property where he had previously fired the gun, and they were able to find shells, and these shells were a match to the shells found at the crime scene. At this point, it was about to reach a year since the double homicide, and Bessie had become the main suspect, but all evidence that police had against him was circumstantial. They needed hard evidence to be able to take him in. And during this entire time, Edward, Sarah's two-year-old, was with Bessie, who was his only remaining living parent at the time. 
But police would soon get a big break when cell tower records came in on Bessie's phone. Bessie had told police that he had been in a truck stop in Montrose the morning of the murders. Montrose is about six hours away from Monte Vista. When looking at his cell phone records, his phone had actually pinged off a tower in Gunnison the morning that Sarah and John were killed, and Gunnison was only about an hour and a half away. This closed in police's timeline and made it possible to place Bessie at the scene of the crime and still give him time to make it to his next trucking run, also indicated in his trucker logs. Daniel Bessie was arrested on February 5, 2013, 11 months after John and Sarah were killed. He was found in Oklahoma while on a trucking run and was charged with first-degree murder, among other charges. It only took the jury about two days to come back with a guilty verdict, and Daniel Bessie was convicted on December 23, 2014. He received a life sentence without parole in addition to a burglary sentence of 32 years. He was also convicted of three misdemeanor counts of reckless endangerment of a child, another three child abuse misdemeanors, as well as a charge of criminal mischief. All of his sentences will be served concurrently. On February 23, 2012, Rosie Junt Johnston would call police as she stood outside of a duplex on the 11,000 block of York Street in North Glen, Colorado. Police arrived at 4.30 a.m. with the call just stating that Rosie needed medical care, but would find that the duplex was in flames. Police had to kick down the front door to get in, but the smoke and fire was already too dense for them to get much farther into the home. North Metro Fire Rescue District Crew 63 would then take over. Even though their trip into the house was brief, two of the police officers had to be treated for smoke inhalation because the fire had reached such a terrible point. Rosie knew that her 26-year-old soon-to-be ex-husband, William Johnson, her 18-month-old Cody, and 5-year-old Caitlin were all inside the house. Fire Rescue was able to get the two children and Johnson out of the duplex, but they did not come out unscathed. The family also had two dogs and a cat in the home, and one dog was able to be saved. But this was not the first time that Rosie had called the police about Johnson that same evening. 30-year-old Rosie had been married to Johnson for five years, but the union was dissolving. William Johnson had wanted to get back together, but Rosie refused and filed for divorce on January 12th, the month prior to this incident. Two hours prior to calling and the fire starting, Rosie would call about William Johnson driving through her grass and hitting her car at about 2 a.m. that evening. As he drove home, police found him and questioned him about the incident. They said that he seemed to not be under the influence The children were in the car, but everything seemed fine, and Johnson was very cooperative. There really was nothing to alarm police, and there were no charges against him at the time. Aurora police, in the area where Rosie was living, instructed the North Glen officers that had pulled over Johnson to let him go. Rosie had gone by to check Johnson's duplex and check on her children specifically because of the conflict in Aurora. When Johnson came to the door, he grabbed Rosie by the head and beat her. 
He then stopped abruptly and forced her outside of the duplex and went back in the house. He barricaded the doors and then set fire to the building with both himself and his children inside. Police would later find that he had set the house on fire by pouring some type of flammable liquid on the floor and then turning on a gas grill. Both children were unconscious when firefighters got to them and spent days in the hospital. 18-month-old Cody was being treated for smoke inhalation. Caitlin had been the last to be pulled from the house and was treated for pneumonia, I am assuming as a complication of smoke inhalation. Caitlin was on a ventilator for multiple days and had burns over 50% of her body. She underwent eight surgeries pretty immediately, and the burns on her face were so bad that they kept her from being able to speak. Two funds, Little Heroes and the Rosie Johnson Fund, were set up to collect donations for Cody and Caitlin's medical bills. Once he was feeling better, Cody visited the firehouse with his mother on Saturday, March 17, 2012, to meet the firefighters that had pulled him out and also have some touring the firehouse and playing in the fire engine. The firefighters involved were eventually given the Franklin Fire Service Award for Valor. The award is sponsored by Motorola and given by the International Association of Fire Chiefs. It's the highest honor awarded by the association that recognizes firefighters worldwide. Battalion Chief Timothy Hanlon, Lieutenant John Mays, Firefighter Engineer Josh Deudo, and firefighters Josh Hamilton, John Briarton, and Mark Maxwell were recognized with the award. So you may be wondering, what happened to the children's father, William Johnson? Johnson was also recuperating in the hospital. Once he was well, he would face charges of assault, domestic violence, and two counts of attempted homicide. He was also charged with child abuse, but died on April 25th due to his injuries from the fire. These stories are not easy ones to tell, but let's talk about some thoughts about the cases. Musing number one. Whenever I tell a story, I always try to give as many details about the victim's life as I can, but sometimes in cases like this, it's just not available. I do think that telling these stories helps victims keep their dignity, and that's why I try to tell as much about them as a person as I can, but sometimes I'm just not able to do that. Musing number two. I find it interesting that in both of these cases, the couples had legal proceedings coming up. Both cases happened in the same year and really close together, and it shows you how common things like this really can be. And they really can be aggravated by instances of legal proceedings. In the case of Daniel Bessie, he was about to go to court for the custody of his youngest son, and William Johnson was about to go to court to start going over divorce proceedings. Using number three. So when I was telling the story of Monte Vista and Daniel Bessie killing Sarah Beasley and John Salazar, I almost used the phrase that the community had started to lock their doors after this. And I know it sounds so cliche, but let's be honest, that's how cities like this end up doing this. You look back at the early days and everybody didn't have locks on their doors or didn't lock their doors and there was no need to. It's instances like this that take away a community's safety, and that's exactly what happened in the case of the murders that Daniel Bessie committed in Monte Vista. Using number four. So it now makes sense why the boys in our first case were not also killed. That's because one of them was Daniel Bessie's kids. 
I also paired these two stories together because one of the things that we've talked about in our last episode is the effect that domestic violence has on kids. And that in many cases, kiddos are firsthand witnesses of domestic violence. Musing number five. In the Daniel Bessie case, I thought it was interesting how Sarah's oldest boy, James, knew how to handle a gun and grabbed a rifle and ammo as he and his brothers fled the scene. Now, I know guns are a huge topic for everybody and can be really sensitive, but I do have to think in a situation like this of how valuable it is for a child to not only know gun safety, but know how to use it to protect themselves. You have to understand Monte Vista is a very small place and in a very wild part of Colorado, so you deal with a lot of animals and things like that too. So that may have been a reason that James was familiar with a gun and ammo. But I'm also glad that they were able to protect themselves in the case that the perpetrator had not left and maybe wanted to get rid of witnesses. Musing number six. So this is less of amusing and more some information about Daniel Bessie that I found really interesting but didn't really fit into the story earlier on in the episode. So once he was arrested and convicted of Sarah and John's murders, his arrest actually shed light on an unsolved murder case in Sawatch County in 2008. This homicide case is called The Lady in the Barrel by Sawatch County Sheriff Mike Norris. And the lady in the barrel was Brenda K. Shepard. On September 20th, 2008, her remains were found mutilated and chopped up in a barrel that was set on fire on a county road. The case had been inactive for a while at the time of Bessie's arrest for John and Sarah's killings. But why did his arrest bring this cold case back up? Because Bessie was Brenda's significant other at the time, and the two were living together and had a child together. Bessie was interviewed and considered a person of interest in 2008 when the killing first occurred. But some other kind of information the police had received took the investigation in a different direction. But don't get too excited. From what I can find about Brenda's case, it's still listed as unsolved and no new information about Bessie's possible connection to her killing has been made public. The article saying that him being arrested made them think about him again is the last one even referencing her case. Using number seven. So this one is about the Johnson case, and I find it interesting that when police pulled him over, they said nothing was wrong, but you're out at 2 a.m. with your children in the car and your ex or soon-to-be ex just called that you basically are doing like a domestic disturbance and Aurora police told them to do nothing. I might just be missing a lot of information about this, but this seems strange to me. Musing number eight. Another thing I found strange about the Johnson case is that I can't really find any record of former child abuse between William Johnson and his kids prior to this. So I wonder if this is more just a retaliation for the spouse for Rosie wanting to have a divorce and this kind of parental killing of children because it doesn't really seem that there's any other history of this prior to this incident. Musing number nine. These... Cases like the Johnson case where people have been married a while just scare me the most. Like you hear about these people that have been married 30 years and the person decides they want to be divorced and they just kill the other person instead of having to get a divorce. Like you marry someone and you're with them for five years and you think you know them. Like you think you know how they're going to react. And that 
just is terrifying to me. Musing number 10. You know I always try to find some kind of silver lining in cases like this, whether if it's how somebody's life ended up afterwards or if it's how maybe legalities have changed to help victims. The silver lining in this one is, according to Megan Quinn's reporting for the Broomfield Enterprise, Caitlin, five-year-old Caitlin, who had 50% of her body burned in the fire that her father set, had said, quote, Mom, when I grow up, I want to be a firefighter, unquote. Remember, there are resources if you are a victim of domestic violence. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE, which is 1-800-799-7233, or visit thehotline.org. If you haven't already, please remember to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. And you can connect with me on social media at Altitude Crime Podcast on Instagram and Altitude Crime on Facebook and Twitter. As always, source materials for this episode can be found on AltitudeCrime.com. Now, as I said earlier in the episode, as we are in spooky season, I will give a little horror movie recommendation, and mine is my favorite Stephen King movie, and not one of the major ones, not The Shining, not something that immediately comes to mind, but one written as a short story and starring one of my favorite actors, John Cusack, and that's 1408. It's basically an author that goes through and debunks haunted places, and he goes to a hotel to go to room 1408, and chaos ensues. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it already. Thanks again for listening, and I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 28 Domestic Violence Awareness Month, Sarah Beasley, John Salazar, and the Johnson Family, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.